The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here in um, it is good to be together, uh, for us to gather and to worship, to come to His Word. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking uh, at a passage in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, we've been in the book of Romans now for a little while. And uh, last week, uh, Andrew got us started in this wonderful chapter uh, by looking at the first few, excuse me, first few verses of this chapter. Um, and Romans 8, if you've been around the church, you know, is, um, is kind of a favorite of the church. Um, it's actually been said that Romans 8 is the uh, most uh, important, it is the greatest chapter of the whole Bible. Um, that's a very bold statement. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure I want to rank the chapters of importance in the Bible, but um, it's all God's word. It's all important. But, but it has been said that, that Romans 8 is the, most, uh, is the greatest chapter of the whole Bible. And if you've read Romans 8 before, you know why someone would make such a bold statement. It's because this chapter is filled with incredible theology. It's also filled with great comfort. Right? Like the comfort we heard last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderfully comforting word. Right? There's great theology. There's great comfort. In this passage, in this chapter, we are called to look ahead to Jesus' coming. We're called to walk with the Spirit. We're assured that we are sons and daughters of the King. It's this beautiful chapter. There's so much in here. And because there's so much in this one chapter, we're actually going to slow down over the next few weeks and go through this a little slower. As we've been going through the book of Romans, we've been going at a little bit quicker pace, right? We're, we're not on the five-year track for Romans. Uh, we're, we're not doing that. We've been going at a steady pace. But, but over the course of the next few weeks, including last week, for six weeks, we're going to spend uh, six sermons in Romans chapter 8. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. So again, if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along. It's all also projected before you on the screens. Paul writes, beginning in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your word. And we ask now that You would help us. That You would help me so that the preaching of Your word would give You glory. May you would help us so that we would be attentive to your word. May you would work by the means of your spirit to convict us of sin and to lead us into truth. And so we pray that you would be amongst us and that you would lead us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. 
And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became a good friend, as good a master and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Of course, that is a part of the summary, the final summary of the life of Ebenezer Scrooge. Right? Ebenezer Scrooge, that wonderful character in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I know Christmas is probably not on our minds right now, right? It's a few months behind us, spring, and it felt like summer this past week is approaching. So we're not thinking about Christmas, but, but I love A Christmas Story. And I love what occurs in Dickens' tale, A Christmas Story. Not just the movies, but the, the actual story. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do so. But you know that story. It's, it's wonderful, not just because of the spirits that are involved or the nostalgia that fills our hearts of Christmas gone by, but, but the story is beautiful and wonderful because of the transformation that takes place in this man's life. We know Scrooge. This one who was mean and miserly. He was selfish and scathing. Even his name, it says it all, doesn't it? Scrooge. <laughs> it just sounds like a Scrooge. <laughs> but there's hope and joy in the story, isn't there? Because Scrooge changes. Meanness is replaced with love. Miserliness is replaced with generosity. Dickens described him, he became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. A transformation occurred. And whether it's Scrooge or Jean Valjean in Les Mis or, or one of the coming-of-age stories that we watch on TV or movies, we love to see the hateful turn to love, the thief become the caretaker, the totally geek become the totally chic. <laughs> we love that transformation. Because stories of transformation, stories of change are powerful. But as we watch these stories unfold, uh, play out on our TV screens, as we read of them in our novels, in our books, it's easy for us to wonder, are, are these stories real? Does change really happen in our world? I know it happens in the world of Scrooge and of Les Mis and of, of these other stories, but, but does it happen today? We've seen the opposite, haven't we? We've seen people become more jaded. See people become more angry, more despondent. But can change for good occur today? Well, in the passage that we just read, these couple of verses, we do see change that has occurred. We see transformation that has happened. Last week, the passage ended with those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But then Paul says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So do you hear the change that has taken place? You were in the flesh, right? In flesh, remember, we're not talking about our physicality. We're not talking about our skin, our bones. When Paul is talking about flesh here, he's talking about our sinfulness. We were in the flesh, but now we are in the Spirit. 
There is a transformation that has occurred, a change that has taken place, and it takes place by the power of God's Spirit. Paul emphasizes the Spirit in chapter 8. You know, um, in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit is only explicitly referenced four times. And in chapter 8, he's referenced 20. Now, now for, for us Presbyterian and Reformed people, uh, talk of the Spirit can make us feel sometimes a little funny. <laughs> right? Because we like our minds, and we like our thinking, and we like our rationality, and, and we've seen the abuse of the Spirit. We've seen people turn talk of the Spirit into emotionalism, and, and we're not sure, are you really being led by the Spirit, and what does that even mean, and all these sorts of things. And so it can make us feel a little uneasy, and so the Spirit becomes the quiet person of the Trinity, or really the forgotten person of the Trinity. But Paul doesn't forget about the Spirit. In fact, Paul speaks about the Spirit an awful lot. And he talks about the Spirit because in order for us to understand the transformation that has taken place in our lives, we can only understand that by knowing the Spirit, by understanding who the Spirit is. And Paul tells us, that the Spirit is the one, the one who transforms us is the Spirit who is sent. We see it in verse 9. The Spirit of God, and then later in verse, in verse 9, he's called the Spirit of Christ. That the Holy Spirit is the one who is sent to us from the Father and the Son. And this is exactly what we profess when we use the Nicene Creed. So from time to time, we'll use various creeds uh, in our liturgy. And the Nicene Creed, in the last paragraph, says, I believe, right, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Now, why this is important is because it's telling us that the Spirit isn't some sort of ethereal power that's kind of floating around us. It's not this, this sort of um, power that we need to learn to tap into or this extra jolt of encouragement or strength. No, the Holy Spirit's not an impersonal force, but he's the third person of the Trinity, sent to us from the Father and the Son. And Jesus actually makes this explicit in John 15 when he says of the Spirit, I will send him to you from the Father. And so the first thing we have to see, the first thing we have to understand is that the Spirit who transforms us is the one who is sent to us but also that the Spirit is the one who resides with us. Three times in our passage, three times, once in verse 9 and twice in verse 11, we're told that the Holy Spirit dwells in those who trust Jesus. So the Holy Spirit isn't just around us. He's not just in close proximity. He's not down the street and he's not living next door. No, no he has taken up residence in us. Okay, think about that for a minute. Now, I know, I know if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know, you know Jesus in my heart, like you've, you've said those things, you've thought those things, and we kind of just move on. But, but think about what we were saying. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwells within us. And that he has for your entire Christian life. And that's really important. 
Because there are some who claim that you believe in the gospel, you hear that message, you affirm it's true, you come to faith, and then later there's this like baptism of the Holy Spirit, this extra filling that comes later, and that's what we should long for, that's what we should look to. But, but that's actually not what Paul said, is it? At the end of verse 9, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What Paul is telling us is that if you belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't know Christ. But if you know Christ, the Spirit resides in you. And because the Spirit resides in you, Christ is with us. Christ is with us. Do you remember at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, we call it the Great Commission. In it, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. Now listen, Jesus isn't just being figurative there. He's not being sentimental. He's not saying like, you know, when you think about me, you'll feel warm and comforted in your heart. Like, that's not what he's doing. He's not being sentimental. He's not being figurative. He's not being nostalgic. No, he is with us. This is the mystery of the Trinity, right? That though Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God the Father, sitting on the throne of David, ruling over heaven and earth, right this moment, he is present with us through his Spirit. He dwells with his people. So let that sink in. Friends, wherever you go, whatever you do, when you're mowing the yard or making dinner, when you're brushing teeth or giving a presentation, whether you're at school or in the workplace or in your bedroom, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. He resides with you. He dwells with you. That's what Paul is telling us. That this one who transforms us doesn't leave us but he resides with us. The Spirit who transforms us, he has been sent from the Father and the Son. He resides with us, and the Spirit is the one who gives life. That's how our passage began. Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And then in verse 10, we're told, but if Christ is in you by means of the Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So because of sin, we know this, right? We know this. Because of sin, death has entered into our world. And our bodies are fading away, right? They are they're breaking down. And it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how, how much we exercise, how, how much good food we put into our bodies, how many vitamins we take. It doesn't matter what we try to do to save it off. Death will come to us all. And we feel it, don't we? We know it. But sin is not just bringing physical death to us, it's also brought spiritual death. Because there is separation between us and the Father. Right? There is, there is this separation between us and the one who created us. 
And so death has come, not just physically, but spiritually. And yet what Paul tells us is that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That there is life. Now listen, there is a little bit of a debate as to who the Spirit is referring to here. There are some who think that the Spirit here should be lowercase s, Spirit, like a person's Spirit, my Spirit, your Spirit, like our soul kind of thing, um, because of the contrast between the body, right? Because the body is clearly talking about a person, so the Spirit, right, the Spirit of life is the Spirit of righteousness, the Spirit of our Spirit. That, that's one way of taking it. I, I think the better way to take it is the way that our translators have in the ESV with a capital S. And that's because for a few reasons. One is that, that the Greek word here for spirit, it's the same Greek word that's used throughout the passage. And in every single one, every single instance, it's speaking explicitly about the Holy Spirit. Also, do you notice what this spirit does? The spirit is life. Not is alive. Okay, my spirit isn't life in of itself. Neither is yours. It doesn't have the ability to generate or create life. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does give life and gives new life. And that's what he does to those who are trusting in Christ. That those who were once dead by the work of the Spirit is given new life today. A life marked by righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, right? His perfect keeping of God's law and His going to the cross and rising again from the dead. His perfect life imputed to us. His righteousness given to us. But also this righteous life that we are now to embody and we live out of. That is the life that the Spirit has given us. And so we embody this righteousness and we live out this new life by the power of the Spirit. Because did you hear who the Spirit is? In verse uh, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Okay, don't, don't let that if throw you off. It's not like he's saying um, if, like maybe this is true about you or not. Right? You already said this is true. The Spirit dwells in us. This if is more like if indeed is the case. And what Paul is telling us is true is that the Holy Spirit, listen to this, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that is the one who is at work in us. Y'all, the power at work to resurrect Christ from the dead, that is the person who's working in you and me? Maybe you came in here this morning and you're thinking about all your sins and all the the temptations that you face. And I don't know all the burdens that you are bearing and I don't know what you are dealing with. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, well, you know, transformation, change. You don't know the power of this temptation. You don't know the power of this sin. You don't know how what kind of a grip it has on my heart or my soul. You're right, I might not know those things. But what I do know is that the Spirit 
who took Jesus, who was crucified and buried and laid in the tomb for three days, the spirit that could raise him from the dead is the same spirit at work in us. And so if he can raise Jesus from the dead, can he not work righteousness in us? So here's the question. How do we know it's the spirit moving? How do we know it's the spirit that's prodding us and and poking us and directing us, right? How do we know if what we're feeling to, to say or to do or not to do or not to say, how do we know that that's the spirit and not our flesh? How do we know it's not just that, like, something we ate earlier? One question that we need to ask is, is that moving us towards Jesus? Is that prompting? Is that prodding? Is it making us more like Christ? Because Jesus said in John 15, the spirit of truth will bear witness about me. And in John 14, he said, the spirit will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And so any kind of prodding, any kind of leading, if it is of the spirit, means we are being led to Christ. And the second thing we should look at is this, being, is this leading us to greater righteousness that's revealed in God's Word? Right? That's what Paul has said. The Spirit of life because of righteousness. And Jesus himself said in John 16 that the Spirit will convict us concerning sin and righteousness. And so whatever we might be feeling, whatever prodding, whatever moving... Whatever provoking, if it is not leading us to greater righteousness, to greater holiness, to greater Christ-likeness, then that is not of the Spirit. But if it is, if we are turning from our sin and we are saying yes to righteousness, if we are saying no to ungodliness and yes to holiness, then that is the Spirit's leading And this life that is given to us, that life that is given to us today, it culminates in eternal life. That's what Paul says in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, what Paul is telling us is that the pattern of our resurrection, it is patterned after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was raised to new life through the Spirit, so that those who are in Christ, who know that because of Christ we are no longer condemned, who know the grace of our Lord Jesus, we too will be raised to new life. That though our bodies die and decay, by the Spirit who dwells in us today, we will be raised to life tomorrow. And we will dwell with him for all eternity. As one theologian put it, the Spirit's life-giving power is not circumscribed by the mortality of the body, but overcomes and transforms that mortality into the immortality of eternal life in a resurrected body. You see, friends, the transformation that has begun... It will conclude when the Holy Spirit transforms our mortal bodies into resurrected bodies. I began this morning by asking if change is real, if transformation can actually happen. And the resounding answer of Romans 8 is yes. 
It is yes. See, that is what the Spirit does. The one who has been sent and who resides in his people, he is the one who gives life. He is the one who transforms. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you that you have given us your Spirit. And by your Spirit's work that you have changed us. You have given us life. And so we pray that we would live as your people, that we would turn away from sin, that we would say no to ungodliness, and we would walk in righteousness. So, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would lead and guide and direct us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would lead us into your truth, and that we would live new lives, Spirit-empowered lives in this present age. Help us to do this, we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen.